Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 306. Today's big Bible question, is it a sin to be rich? And now, an awkward pause while we wait for the music to finish. Ah, there we go. Happy Wednesday to you, dear friends, and welcome. Our scriptures for the day begin with 2 Kings chapter 9, then Psalm 119, 73 through 96, Hosea chapter 1, a new book for us, and we finish with 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is our focus passage. Today, we are talking about wealth and money and riches which is a controversial subject. Don't worry, though. I'm not going to ask you to get your wallets or credit cards out. One thing I've noticed as a pastor is that God will sometimes allow you to experience what you were preaching about during the week prior to the preaching. For instance, I've planned to preach on healing before, only to have like five or six members of the household get sick the week before that message, which is challenging. I've preached on overcoming trials and adversity multiple times in the weeks prior were just filled with extreme and unforeseen trials and tribulations. One time I preached on the power of weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and that very day I had this weird physical physical day where like I was... I was like messed up the whole day, even though I wasn't sick. I felt like run down and unhealthy, like something was terribly wrong. Well, wake up Monday, I completely bounced back and everything was normal. It was a very, very weird situation. So it was with some anticipation last month when it came time to preach about Solomon and how his great wealth and many wives seemed to turn his heart away from God at the end of his life. I waited that week to see if I might experience some solemnic situations, but the number of my wives remained at a steady one, and I didn't notice a massive bank account uptick, nor did silver and gold start appearing everywhere and pouring out of the closets, alas. So today, in discussing the dangers and proper use of wealth, I don't exactly expect to be suddenly made rich. But if for some reason the podcast all of a sudden doesn't air tomorrow for the first time this year, you might check and see if some rando in Salinas has all of a sudden become a multi-billionaire overnight. I won't be holding my breath. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil is a phrase from today's focus chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's one of the best known and most often quoted Bible verses, almost honestly as well known as John 3.16. Even people not in the church know that the love of money is the root of all evil or all kinds of evil. Paul is going to give us some very, very strong warnings today about the love of money, warnings that are honestly echoed throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. But is it actually sinful and wrong to be rich? Well, let's read the passage and try to discern the answer. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words, 
From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So, there's lots of wisdom in the Bible about money, lots of discussion of riches, and most of that discussion about wealth and riches is honestly very cautionary in tune quite cautious enough in tone to uh, really make the most ardent American capitalist quite uncomfortable. For instance, you have passages like Proverbs 11.28, anyone trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs 23.4, don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. Proverbs 28.20, A faithful person will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. Matthew 19, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke 6, 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. James 5, 1 through 3, and James has a lot to say about riches. Come now. You rich people weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. And friends, those are just a smattering of the Bible passages warning against the danger and allure of riches. You're probably familiar with the story of the rich young ruler whom Jesus instructed to sell all of his things and give to the poor. Upon hearing this, the rich young ruler went away sad because he had a lot of things and because he apparently wasn't too keen to give those things up. So given the danger of wealth, 
and Jesus' instruction to the rich young ruler, then all of you who are wealthy should immediately give away your money, right? And yes, of course, that's correct. Just send it to Chase A. Thompson at 1019. Oh, okay, wait. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't send me your money. But the testimony of the Bible is very clear. Great wealth and riches can be dangerous, very dangerous. And it is very true that Jesus told the rich young ruler to give his money away. But that is not the Bible counsel to everybody with wealth, but I don't want to minimize that. I think Jesus would still tell some rich people today to sell everything they have, give it to the poor, and then come follow him, because so many rich people today uh, are idolatrous in their focus on money. But I need to say, sometimes the Bible speaks in a more positive way about money. For instance, Proverbs 10.4, idle hands make one poor but diligent hands bring riches. And it's probably good to remember that it was God himself who gave Solomon wealth, and Solomon didn't ask for that. 1 Kings 3.13, it says, In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. Would God give something to somebody that was inherently and intrinsically evil? I don't believe so. God gives good gifts. Thus, money isn't inherently evil. It is the idolatrous or all-consuming love of money and pursuit of wealth that is the root of all kinds of evils. Jesus gives us an excellent parable about this issue in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Jesus told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive, and he thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? Ah, I'll do this, he said. I'll tear tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all of my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, You have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's Jesus saying that. I'm going to read it again. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man was not judged a fool by God for being wealthy or being a good landowner and farmer with fruitful land, but for his attitude about his wealth. Jesus warns that the problem is storing up treasure for yourself and not being rich towards God. Now, practically, what does that look like? Does it look like a millionaire giving big checks to his church in a way that doesn't really affect his own bottom line, but is a big help to the church? Well, maybe that's a beginning, but Paul gives us actually more than just a beginning in our focus passage today. We read, I want to remind you again of 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, which says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy some things. Verse 18, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So storing up treasure in heaven, of course, is what is meant there. 
every rich person out there, which is probably a surprisingly high percentage of Americans and Westerners, should have this verse framed on the walls of their house. It's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to be rich and arrogant. It's sinful to have your hope set on wealth rather than God. It's dangerously sinful to be rich in money, but poor in giving, poor in generosity, and poor in good works. It's a great danger to the soul of one who stores up treasure on earth, but has no interest or focus on storing up treasures in heaven. So let's focus, uh, let's close with some wisdom and challenge from our dear friend Spurgeon. He says this, Having spoken to those who seek riches, he now admonishes those who possess them that they must not hoard for themselves, but lay up treasure in heaven by generously distributing their goods on earth. Have we property? Let us hold it as stewards of the Lord. It is both our duty and our happiness to use all that we have to glorify him who... Though he was rich, yet became poor for our sakes. Is he truly ours? Then let all of ours be truly his. To prosper in business with the sincere desire of using everything for the honor of glo- and glory of God is laudable and proper. But to make this the end, success in business, rather than the means, is a horrible prostitution and debasement of our energies. To live for this world is to be dead to the world to come. The apostle bids us to lay hold on eternal life that rather than on this life, to gain riches of grace rather than riches of gold. Furthermore, he has a word for us if we become rich, for he supposes that such a thing may be and that it did happen in his own day. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they not be high-minded or arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth all richly who gives us all richly things to everything to enjoy that they do good that they be rich in good works ready to distribute willing to communicate laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may hold on to eternal life as the alchemist was said to transmute brass and copper into gold though he did no such thing So there is a real alchemy which can sublime gold and silver into everlasting treasure. These talents are not to be despised, but put out to interest for the Lord. They can be laid where no rust corrupts and where thieves do not break through and steal. They can be traded within a heavenly market and turned to everlasting gains. We can use them for helping on the work of the Lord and by distribution to the poor and needy. I would that all men at this hour abounded in almsgiving, but specifically those who are followers of the loving Jesus. Regard your transactions from the standpoint of eternity. Weigh what you do, not as it may be thought of by men of the world, but as it will be judged by yourself when you behold in the heavenly country the face of him you love. I do not want you to have to say, when you come to die, I've had large possessions, but I've been a bad steward. I've had a a bad steward. I have had competence and I have wasted my master's good. All I have done with my wealth was to furnish my house well, perhaps to buy expensive pictures and to allow myself luxuries, which did me more harm than good. I hope on the contrary, Spurgeon says, you will be able to say I'm saved by grace alone, but that grace enabled me to consecrate my possessions and put them to the best uses. I can render up my stewardship without fear. I did not live for the fleeting life which is now over, but for the life everlasting. Good wisdom there from Spurgeon. We continue in Second Kings chapter 9, 
And we meet Jehu, one of the more interesting kings in the Bible. The prophet Elisha called one of the sons of the prophets and said, Tuck your mantle under your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in, get him away from his colleagues, and take him to an inner room, then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Open the door and escape. Don't wait. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, the army commanders were sitting there. So he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu asked, for which one of us? He answered, for you, commander. So Jehu got up and went into the house. And the young prophet poured the oil on his head and said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to strike down the house of your master Ahab, so that I may avenge the blood shed by the hand of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of all the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will wipe out all of Ahab's males, both slave and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashah, son of Ahijah. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. No one will bury her. Then the young prophet opened the door and escaped. When Jehu came out to his master's servants, they asked, Is everything all right? Why did this crazy person come to you? Then he said to them, You know the sort. And they're kind of ranting. But they replied, That's a lie. Tell us. So Jehu said, He talked to me about this and that and said, This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. And they blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king! Then Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram and all of Israel had been at Ramoth-Gilead on guard against King Hazael of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought against Aram's King Hazael. Jehu said, If you commanders wish to make me king, then don't let anyone escape from the city to go tell about it in Jezreel. Jehu got into his chariot and went to Jezreel since Joram was there laid up and King Ahaziah of Judah had gone down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. He saw Jehu's mob approaching and shouted, I see a mob. Joram responded, choose a rider and send him to meet him and have him ask, do you come in peace? So a horseman went to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king asks, do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The watchman reported the messenger reached them, but he hasn't started back. So he sent out a second horseman who went to them and said, This is what the king asks. Do you come in peace? Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. Again, the watchman reported he reached them, but hasn't started back. Also, the driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Get the chariot ready, Joram shouted, and they got it ready. Then King Joram of Israel and King Ahaziah of Judah set out, each in his own chariot, and met Jehu at the let at the plot of land of Naboth the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Do you come in peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be as long as there is so much prostitution and sorcery from your mother Jezebel? Joram turned around and fled, shouting to Ahaziah, It's treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow went through his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, pick him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding side by side beside his, behind his father Ahab, 
And the Lord uttered this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons yesterday, this is the Lord's declaration, so I will repay you on this plot of land. This is the Lord's declaration. So now, according to the word of the Lord, pick him up and throw him on the plot of land. When King Ahaziah of Judah saw what was happening, he fled up the road toward Beth Hagan. Jehu pursued him, shouting, Shoot him too! So they shot him in his chariot at Gur Pass near Abilium. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him to Jerusalem in a chariot and buried him in his ancestor's tomb in the city of David. It was in the eleventh year of Joram son of Ahab that Ahaziah had become king over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, so she painted her eyes, fixed her hair, and looked down from the window. As Jehu entered the city gate, she said, Do you come in peace, Zimri, killer of your master? He looked up toward the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and Jehu rode over her. Then he went in, ate and drank, and said, Take care of this cursed woman and bury her, since she's a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they did not find anything but the skull, the feet, and the hands. So they went back and told him, and he said, That fulfills the Lord's word that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the plot of land at Jezreel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's corpse will be like manure on the surface of the ground in the plot of land at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. Psalm 119, 73-96 Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. Those who fear you will see me and rejoice, for I put my hope in your word. I know, Lord, that your judgments are just and that you have afflicted me fairly. May your faithful love comfort me as you promised your servant. May your compassion come to me so that I may live, for your instruction is my delight. Let the arrogant be put to shame for slandering me with lies. I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you, those who know your decrees, turn to me. May my heart be blameless regarding your statutes so that I will not be put to shame. I long for your salvation. I put my hope in your word. My eyes grow weary looking for what you have promised. I ask, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin dried by smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many days must your servant wait? When will you execute judgment on my persecutors? The arrogant have dug pits for me. They violate your instruction. All your commands are true. People persecute me with lies. Help me. They almost ended my life on earth, but I did not abandon your precepts. Give me life in accordance with your faithful love, and I will obey the decree you have spoken. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands firm. Your judgments stand firm today, for all things are your servants. If your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for you have given me life through them. I am yours. Save me, for I have studied your precepts. The wicked hope to destroy me, but I contemplate your decrees. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your command is without limit. Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea son of Beeri during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam son of Jehoiash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. 
So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel and the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in Jezreel Valley. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no compassion, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. Well, amen. May the Lord bless you, friends. May he keep you and shine his grace on you. Good day to you and Godspeed.